Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Do you stream on a Roku, Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. For the big story on Action News. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we have another great show for you this week. Um, and actually, this week, we have a show full of doctors. I'm very excited. Um, joining me in just a moment will be Dr. Judy Ho. And Dr. Ho is a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. Um, she's also a very uh, notable media advisor um, and best known for her appearances on the show, The Doctors. So she'll be with me in just a moment. Later in the show, you're going to hear from our wellness contributor, Dr. Shalja Dixit. And Dr. Shalja is going to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Grill and Dr. Alice Domar. And they're going to be talking about the uh, mind-body medicine, um, I'll say movement, that's um, being utilized by many, many physicians and particularly for women. So that's going to be a really interesting segment. And of course, for all things Women to Watch, visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So now I'm very excited and honored to welcome to the show, Dr. Judy Ho. Hi, Sue. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great as well. Thanks so much for having me on your program. It's great to have you. Remind me where you are. Where are you joining us from? I'm in Los Angeles, California. You're in LA. Okay. How is it there today? Well, today it's, you know, our weather's all over the place. It's hot. It's cold. I mean, it really it's does not. Snowing, like it's snowing. <laughs> I know there's snow here in Southern California still. We still have snow caps. So yeah, but today it looks like a pretty, you know, decent day, a little cloudy, but no complaints at all. Great, great. Um, but listen, I'm excited to kind of dig into your background and get to the heart of your story and what led you to the to the work that you're doing today. And um, I wanted to start off with just asking you what your most vivid memories are of Taiwan, which is where you were born. And I know you were there till age nine. So you must have some, um, you know, wonderful memories of your short time there, I'll say. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, my parents were very, very busy working. They each had two jobs um, to try to put food on the table. So I was raised in those very young, pivotal years by my maternal grandmother. For the most part, she was basically, you know, the babysitter, the parent figure, the person who like helped me with school, walked me to school, education, play was everything. So she was a wonderful person, just like the most loving, unconditional loving person that you would ever meet. And my memories of those early years in Taiwan were, were great. My little sister is four years younger than me. So I have some memories of when she was really tiny and uh, playing with her. And my parents, you know, when they came home from work at night, obviously, like that's when we would get more quality time with them. But really, I remember most of my memories were about my maternal grandmother during those years. Do you see some of um, yourself in her or vice versa? Do you think you have, you know, some of her traits? Yeah, well, you know, now that I have my own child, I feel like there's parts of my mothering and my parenting that I think emulates how she treated me. So I think that there's definitely something there. She's also a woman who really has a strong personality and a strong will. And she has a lot of perseverance. And I'd like to think that those are the traits that I've tried to adopt as well throughout my life. One of the things you shared with me um, in our introductory call was your time volunteering for Big Brother, Big Sister. And I believe you had kind of a, an epiphany or a revelation um, when you were mentoring um, a little girl in foster care that 
prompted your interest in psychology. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. So when I was a teenager, I volunteered in the Big Brother Big Sister program, and I was assigned this little girl to mentor. She was 10 years old. So, you know, I was maybe five or six years older than her. What did I know about anything? Not much, (laughs) but it was amazing because just by virtue of me showing up at the same time every week, like I said, I would, you know, sometimes we'd go to the library. Sometimes we'd go get ice cream. We'd watch a movie or we'd just talk. Um, I, I realized very quickly, I was one of the most consistent people in her life because in the time that I worked with her, she had gone through six or seven different foster care homes. So there wasn't really one person who was that consistent companion for her or somebody that she looked up to or just somebody who was there for her. And I just realized that with the fact that I had zero knowledge as a teenager about mental health and psychology and and how to bring wellness to another individual, that just by showing up, that was enough. And it really helped her a lot. And we have a very strong bond. I mean, there's up to a few years ago, we were still writing each other from time to time. Oh, that's so nice. So uh, it's an amazing experience for me because it really prompted me to think about how much one person could have it uh, to make such a big difference in another person's life. And sometimes inadvertently, you don't even know that you're making that difference, you know? Um, And that's what really got me interested in the career in psychology. Were you, did you find yourself very curious about her life and asking her, you know, a lot of probing questions because it was so different from your own? Yeah, I feel like she asked me a lot of questions as well. I think that the conversations was just really natural. I think sometimes she had complaints about what was going on in her foster home or things that were going on in school. Uh, She was being bullied a lot by a group of girls at school. And it was very covert um, how it is sometimes when girls bully each other. It's not outright and aggressive in a direct fashion, but it's about, you know, isolating her from things, um, spreading rumors, gossip. So we talked a lot about those things. And I don't think that I had any answers for her, really. I don't think that I solved any of her problems. But again, it's just by being there and listening and telling her that it was okay, and that things are going to get better. And just really being there to listen. And that whole idea of rapport with another individual and just having that deeper connection was really, really important to her and to me. Now, moving to the U.S. at age nine must have been hard, must have been difficult, right? Um, what, was the, what was the toughest thing adjusting to coming to a new country? Well, I think there was two things. You know, our grandmother did not come with us, so I definitely was missing her because I was so used to having her in my daily life. And she stayed back in Taiwan. But I think the other part is just a culture shock for sure. I mean, I didn't speak any English at all. So I had to start from the very beginning. And I, I was enrolled in ESL class, English as Second Language. And you're kind of marked as a student when you're in that class because everybody sees that you're going to ESL class. I definitely was teased um, because I didn't speak English. People would you know, say mean things about me that I didn't understand. And that first year was, was difficult. But, but very oddly, there were two things that I found um, were universal and didn't need my full understanding of English to be able to participate in. And that was math and music. So I've been playing music since I was three years old. I learned piano when I was three. And I um, math is a subject that, especially when I was younger, I really liked that subject. I liked the fact that there was defined answers to things. Like there's one answer for every math problem. And um, those activities, I was able to participate in really well without being able to speak English very well. So after that first year was fine, you know, I feel like at age nine, when you're coming, you're still in that critical language period. So I picked up English really fast. Mm -hmm. So I remember that after that first year, my English comprehension was great. But that first year, what got me through, I think, was math and music. (laughs) So, you know, we hear often that there's such a connection between, you know, math, science and the arts, music in particular. And you you played five instruments. That's a lot. Yes, yes. I I love music. And now that I have a toddler, I'm exposing him to music. I've been exposing him to music ever since I was pregnant with him, really. And every day we sing together. He tinkles on the piano and plays my guitar. And it's really cute. And I, I think that the whole idea of math and, and uh, or sciences and the arts connecting, people don't necessarily see that connection. They think that maybe you're using different parts of the brain, but it's really not true because both science and music and the arts, uh, they both subside on patterns. 
So there are different kinds of patterns and different uh, disciplines, but it's all about patterns. And so I think that if you're somebody who is attracted to patterns, and I think all human beings are to, to a certain degree, because we all like some kind of consistency and something we can understand and, and almost like a puzzle that you can solve, then you can be great at any of those subjects. And so I actually know personally many people who have a science background, maybe work in a science career, but their passion in the evenings and on the weekends is something artistic. And they're able to meld their knowledge in both uh, aspects to help fuel the other. Would you say, were your parents, um, you know, encouraging you to, to stay in the arts and, and learn music? And, or was that something that you were interested in on your own and asked to do? Well, they gave me my first exposure. They took me to my first piano class. And it was funny because my mom tried to take me when I was just turned three. And my piano teacher said, her hands are too small. It's not really going to be uh, too easy for her to play the piano. Maybe she can come back in like half a year. So I think I technically started around three and a half years old. So they definitely gave me my first exposure. But after that, I just became more interested in other instruments. And I asked them if I could participate in them. Obviously, there were times also when I was a teenager, especially when I you know, begged my parents to quit the the music uh, that I was studying because I wanted to do other things. But right. um, they kind of pushed me to stay with it. And I'm really glad that they, they did do that because now I have this amazing set of hobbies that um, really also is a great wellness activity. It's a great activity for mindfulness and just to be able to relax and, and to still be active in a different way and to exercise another part of my brain. Yeah, I... I that it's interesting to me because I played the piano and the guitar very young, but I did give it up and I, my parents did not push me to stay with it. And I kind of wish they had. Um, I do think it's a wonderful escape from the world to be able to just go and play or sing. Yes, exactly. And yes, yeah, singing is another uh, one of the things that I love doing all the time. And I write music and it's just nice. It's just really great to be able to, to utilize that. But Sue, it's never too late. You can always get back into the piano. I, or I know. I, I think about it sometimes. I do. Um, tell me, how, so how soon after you came to the U.S. did you make the decision from an educational standpoint that you were going to study psychology? So my, the first seed was in high school around 15 or 16 years old. And so when I went to college at Berkeley, I really thought that I was probably going to stick with psychology, but I also majored in business. I was interested in the business aspect. My parents um, own a real estate company. And so I understood the, the value of having business skills. And so I did work and train in both disciplines during college. But after I graduated college, when I was at that crossroads, and I actually had a very, a, be a beautiful offer actually in uh, the finance industry uh, for a job, I, you know, I, I turned down that offer to work at a essentially a minimum wage job that would pave the path for my psychology graduate education. Wow. And so um, I'm glad that I did that. And I remember at the beginning of that year, I said, you know, I'm kind of at a little bit of a crossroads. I still think I want to be a psychologist, but I want to be sure. So I took this minimum wage job uh, at a special education school for what back then what there was a term called ED, which is emotionally disturbed children. I don't think it's a great term and I don't think that they use that term anymore, but essentially they're trying to um, create a program around children who tend to have multiple different types of mental and educational challenges. And so these children um, had a lot of different difficulties. They had some behavioral issues. They had mental health diagnoses. Um, sometimes they had other limitations that would affect their learning. And I worked in the school for one year before I went to graduate school. And I just remember that working there, it was a really important experience because I realized that in order to be able to do more, I had to go for my terminal degree and get my doctorate. It was really a good lesson in that because at the bachelor's level, you could do things to help, but you couldn't really have the kind of influence I really wanted to on people that I was working with to help them shape their life. And so that was what really cemented my resolve to go and become a psychologist. Okay. Listen, we're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, I really want to dive in and learn more about your work and the differences between working with children and adults. And um, certainly in today's world, there's so much to talk about um, with regard to mental health and wellness. So 
Stay with us and you'll hear from our watch team and we'll be right back with Dr. Judy Howe. At Action News, we cherish every moment and it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Hi, this is Sue Rocco. Women to Watch is pleased to share a clip from Breaking Through, a podcast hosted by Madeline Bell, the president and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. This interview is part of a series in which Madeline interviews CHOPs women scientists about what inspires them and advice they have for other women interested in pursuing science and medicine careers. My guest today is Dr. Susan Firth. In 2021, Dr. Firth was named CHOPs chief scientific officer. She is the first woman in CHOPs 166-year history to hold this important role. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Firth to Breaking Through. So, Sue, it's really great to be talking with you today, and it's a topic that I'm very interested in, which is the future of CHOP and science and research and discoveries. But let me say that you are now our chief scientific officer, so how exciting from that girl with the chemistry set (laughs) to the woman who is now the leader of our scientific community here at CHOP. And tell me, you've been in the role now for about six months, And tell me a little bit about what your impressions are, what excites you about the role, and what do you see for the next several years? It's a really exciting place to be and an exciting time in science. Since I've been at CHOP now for about 11 years, and with the talent that we have here, our sense of mission with research as our North Star, I think we have the opportunity to transform the medical care we deliver to children. To hear more of Madeline's interviews with CHOP's amazing doctors and scientists, listen to Breaking Through with Madeline Bell, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm joined today by Dr. Judy Ho, a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. Um, You know, as I say that, Judy, I'd love to, what is the difference between a neuropsychologist and just psychologist alone? Yeah. So psychologists would encompass a lot of different types of disciplines. There's developmental psychologists, there's organizational industrial psychologists, for example, personality psychologists. So different uh, studies and different sub-disciplines. A neuropsychologist is a clinical specialty. So that means that we are licensed professionals who treat patients. And specifically, we have additional training and expertise in the knowledge about brains and behavior and how they link together. Many neuropsychologists conduct evaluations to understand the brain and how it works better. So they evaluate people for cognitive issues, for giftedness, for learning issues, and also just to tease out complex diagnoses. So those are some of the things that neuropsychologists specialize in. Okay. Um, I, you know, you mentioned your son, Luca, And I'm so curious as to, you know, you've done this work for many years. um, And I wondered after becoming a mother and having a little boy, and now you're going to watch his development, has anything surprised you, um, you know, in in watching him and, and now being a mother? Yes, definitely. So, you know, it doesn't matter how many years of experience and training and expertise you have when you have your own son, I feel like everything goes out the window, really. Obviously, there's always that knowledge in the back of my mind about things like developmental behaviors, milestones, things that he's doing, etc. But I really don't think about my son at all that way. And it's not really about consciously applying any of my professional expertise, really. It's really just about being with him in the moment and just spending time with him and being there for him. And it's interesting that when you do that, um, you know, what can unfold. And so one of the things that I've realized about myself is I think of myself as a pretty type A person. I'm pretty, you know, uh, go-getter type, uh, things need to be planned out, you know, all of that. And with my son, I feel like I have infinite patience. I'm not really sure where that comes from because I don't feel like, (laughs) yeah, I don't feel like that's really the way that I'm made up. But with my son, it's like, no matter what he does, I'm just so patient with him. And that is something that has surprised me. And um, 
knowing that with my son, really the most important thing to him is that I'm just there with him. I don't and have fully, to fully there, right? Yeah. Present, not kind yes. of over here, but kind of with him. Yes. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't happen at all the time, every single moment. I think that I'm generally pretty good about it, but it's really funny because now that he's a year and a half and he's developing his own mind and independence, there's been a couple of times where, for example, um, where I'm spending time with him, he's in my arms and maybe I'm checking a text or an email. And now he will grab my face with his hand and turn me towards him so that I'm still making <laughs> eye contact with him. Like, it's like a little reminder of like, Hey, like this is our time. And I want us to be looking at each other as opposed to maybe you looking off on your phone to right. look at your email or your calendar. And I just think that that's so funny that even at his little age, like that is something that he's showing he strongly prefers, right? It's like, I need you to be here. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's just so amazing that he does that. <laughs> it is amazing. Oh my gosh, I remember that. I remember their little hands pulling the face and yep. you know, focus on me. Um, I want to share a quote. Um, you said, my drive comes from wanting to have as much positive impact in the world as I can while I'm here. And I wanted to ask you if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing first, mm -hmm. what would that be? Wow, change one thing first. You know, I think what I would try to change is just the stigma um, that still exists about mental illness. You would think that with all these conversations about wellness and mental health, especially in the past few years in the pandemic, when we've seen the statistics, we know that people have been struggling more than ever with that. There's still so much stigma. People still judge themselves when they have depression symptoms, they judge themselves when they go to therapy or see a psychiatrist. And sometimes they hide that even from their family members and colleagues and friends because they're afraid of other people's opinions or seeming uh, like they're weak. And I wish that people would just treat mental conditions the way that they would treat physical conditions. You know, you'd go to the doctor to make sure that your blood pressure was all right, or if you had any kind of issues, you generally would not hesitate to visit your primary care physician. So I wish people had that attitude towards their mental health and felt like they could have that conversation directly. Because the more that we can talk about it, the less that stigma will exist. But I think that it's still so secretive for so many people. Yeah. Um, how would you describe? So I think, and you're the doctor. So there's mental um issues and there's emotional issues. And what mm -hmm. is the distinction and the difference? And I think people are more apt to be able to just talk about emotion, their emotions, than the term mental illness. They feel yeah, so reflection. I, exactly. I think that some people, um, when they talk about emotions, they can express their emotions generally. But when it, when it's talking about, okay, my emotions is not just periodic sadness. Now I'm talking about words like depression or like anxiety or panic attacks, that's when people say, well, that sounds like a mental illness or a mental condition. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. But really, everything's on a spectrum, right? And I wish that people could mm -hmm. see that also. More than the label, it's really just about feeling your best. And so whether it's periodic sadness, or depression symptoms, or however you want to describe it, if it's interfering from you living your best life and reaching your goals, then I think it's time to take a closer look at it and say, you know, what is a way that I can actually address this issue? And usually when it gets to a point where it is impacting your functioning in important areas like your relationships or your work or just your general physical and mental wellness, then it usually is time to visit with a professional to see if they might have some scientific based strategies for you. But I think that that's where people sometimes stop. You know, they'll maybe they'll read some self-help books, maybe maybe they'll talk to some friends but they stop short of actually visiting with those uh, specialty professionals who might actually be able to get them to that next step. Do you think we'll, we'll be able to get to a place where that is not the case? And perhaps it's going to take a very, very long time because for so long there has been a stigma. Yeah. Do you think that it's going to be something that's possible, but I think that everybody has to pitch in, right? Everybody has to start showing that it isn't something to be ashamed about. And I see that, for example, some people who are influential public figures, celebrities coming out and saying, I struggle with this. I think that that's one piece of it. But I also think that it's also just about 
people in your daily lives talking about it, right? So there's there's a sense of, okay, even celebrities or public figures could suffer from this, but they still feel kind of like distanced from you. Yes. Um, yes. So it's really about you having this conversation where you live and where you work and being able yeah. to have uh, supervisors and bosses who like are willing to open the door for that conversation, even mm -hmm. in the work environment and having a family member or a friend lead the way. And so I think all of us can do something to pave the way to reducing stigma. Um, you, you wrote a book, um, Stop Self-Sabotage, um, in 2019. And what, what's an example of self-sabotage? What does that mean? What is someone doing? So self-sabotage, very simply put, is just getting in your own way despite your best intentions. So when you set a goal for yourself, uh, you just stop moving towards it. Or when you're about to reach it, all of a sudden you do something to pull yourself back. And it can be in any area of life. It can be in your physical and mental wellness. It can be in career and work. It can be in romantic relationships, family relationships, friends and collegial relationships too. Um, and you're writing a second book. Is it right? Is that yes. in the works? Can you yes. tell us a little bit about what that's going to be? It's called The New Rules of Attachment, and it's about healing your attachment style at any age in your life. Okay. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's going to be a very universal topic because we talk about attachment styles a lot. And again, we've been talking a lot about formative years and what people take away from that. And, you know, parents do their best, but they're not necessarily perfect ever. Right. And so sometimes they impart certain lessons about the child's self-worth or their ability to achieve the things that they want in the world in a very different way than maybe they even intended, but people then take those lessons with them and it affects them as adults. Right. And so I feel like a lot of the literature out there about attachment style though has been, okay, let's define what attachment style you are. And then if you have an insecure attachment style, here's what's going on with you and here's how that affects your relationships or your life negatively. But I have not seen a lot of work about, well, how can you heal your attachment style, especially if Maybe your parents have passed away or maybe your parents are not willing to do that work with you. Um, then is there still hope for you to get to a more secure attachment style and, and to start affecting these positive changes in your life? And the answer is yes. You know, again, it's not to blame parents. No parent is perfect. Sometimes these insecure attachment styles form because parents inadvertently um, instill children with certain ideas about themselves and their lives that they didn't mean to. Of course, there's a small subset of parents who, who are sometimes abusive of their children. That's obviously a completely different ballgame. But I think that for most people, they develop insecure attachment because of early experiences that really isn't anyone's fault. But what do we do about it when we get to be adults and we want a different kind of life for ourselves? So this is really what the book is about and how we can heal our attachment style on our own, even if your parents or people from your formative family are not there to help you with that work. Mm. Have in doing this research, have you recognized something in yourself with regard to your own upbringing and, and your own parents and perhaps since you've spent so much time with your grandmother? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to me, I feel like my grandmother is, is a savior because she really instilled in me a ability to have secure attachment. Uh, my parents are wonderful people, but because of the fact that we were struggling so much financially, my closeness with them as a younger child was not there until we came to America. And I actually learned to live with them, you know, basically most of the time. Um, so really, I think my grandmother and that's that's the lesson again, is that it just takes one person. So for some people, they'll say, well, my relationship with my dad wasn't so strong, but it was with my mom. And that's where they learned that secure attachment. But maybe with their dad, it, it wasn't quite there. And that doesn't mean, again, that you can't heal that relationship later and you can have different experiences. But the early childhood experience in that time frame is so important because we're coming into the world as blank slates in many ways. And we're just learning about everything at that age. And so you're soaking up that knowledge very quickly. And that's why some of those early lessons tend to stick with you a lot longer, even though as you grow up, maybe certain things have challenged those pre-existing beliefs, but your mind is still stuck on them because that's what you thought uh, the world uh, and what it takes to work is, you know, all of that is really built into those early years because it's your first exposure. So your mind remembers that a lot more. Mm, it is amazing how much, 
just the smallest little experience or moment from our childhood can keep reappearing at, you know, in our lives as adults. Exactly. Um, what did, this is my last question because we're, boy, that went really quick. What does a neuropsychologist say to herself in a moment of angst or anxiety or fear? Yeah. You know, I, I try to tell myself that like this moment will pass and that essentially a lot of times our greatest fears or stress is because we're living in the past, thinking about maybe past troubles or mistakes or like thinking about the future and what could potentially go wrong and the worst that can happen. Mm -hmm. So if we can bring ourselves back to this moment and just focus on what's going on right now, things don't seem to be so dire. And then if something really stressful does happen at some point in the future, your mind knows how to focus in the moment to solve that problem. That's what we're designed to do. So evolutionarily, that is how we are designed is to get ourselves out of big, trouble spots when we need to our survival instinct is really strong so that fear of what might happen is never it's never the same as when you're just living through a crisis and just having to manage through it so i think that that's something that i try to remind myself and people who tell me that they struggle with that yeah that's great advice really good a good uh, reminder um, well, I thank you so much for taking time to um, be with me this week and keep enjoying that little Luca. That's the greatest name. Oh, thank you so much, Sue. It was so great to speak with you. Thank you for the wonderful questions and for all the good that you're doing. Thank you so much. Stay with us up next, our watch team, and we will be back. Action News, celebrating 50 years of AccuWeather. If you think severe weather has been on the rise, you are correct. In the last three years, tornado warnings in our region have shattered records. With 52 last year alone, half of those warnings resulted in confirmed tornadoes, including two extremely rare EF3s. Thanks for always trusting us to keep you informed. 50 Years of AccuWeather is sponsored by Independence Blue Cross. Choose coverage you can count on with the region's strongest network. Is the best vacation one that you find? or one you get lost in, one that takes you to new heights or reminds you to go with the flow, to get your feet wet and your wheels spinning, one that lets you find your own rhythm or get carried away. Find the best of yourself. Get lost in the woods. Plan your stay in the wild woods today. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley, and everywhere in between. For 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start, supporting families as they grow, and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. There's a moment. Every hour, every day, every week. These moments shape our world. They add color, perspective, and sometimes pain. Moments are meant to be shared. Shared by friends, family, people you trust. At Action News, we cherish every moment. And it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm excited to um, introduce you to our Wellness Watch contributor, Dr. Shalja Dixit, and she's going to be speaking with two brand new advisors of Curio Digital Therapeutics, Dr. Elizabeth Grill and Dr. Alice Domar. Enjoy the segment. Thank you, Sue. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, I am today uh, honored to bring, I'm Shalja Dixit. I have been uh, here on the show with Sue a couple of times. I'm CEO and founder of Curio Digital Therapeutics. I'm really delighted to bring 
two of our experts here on the show today, Dr. Grill and Dr. Domar. I'm going to give their introduction, but it's also very timely. Uh, this, this week, uh, 23rd April to 29th April is National Infertility Awareness Week. Uh, and uh, we are so delighted to talk about this very important issue here and bring two experts here. So, you know, again, uh, uh, let me, before, before uh, it's too late, let me introduce my two guests, Dr. Ali Domar. She is a pioneer in the field of mind and body. Her research focuses on the relation between stress and various medical condition. She received her MA and PhD in health and psychology from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, and she is at, uh, at this point of time, chief empathy officer at Inception Clinic, as well as associate professor in OBGYN and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School. Um, equally well-known, Dr. Liz Grill uh, is here with us. She's experienced as counseling psychologist and medical researcher with special focus on emotional aspect of infertility, IVF, cancer-related infertility, and uh, sexual dysfunction. She's a clinical psychologist at the Center of Reproductive Medicine, Infertility, and is associate professor of psychology in the Department of OBGYN, Reproductive Medicine, uh, Psychiatry at NY. Uh, Presbyterian Hospital, Whale Cornell at Cornell Medical. So welcome and thank you so much for your time. I'm so delighted to be talking about this very important issue. So let's get right in. Uh, you know, I, I was just reading some uh, statistics, uh, you know, with this week of awareness. One in five women are unable to get pregnant and research estimates about 15% of the couple will have trouble, trouble receive, uh, conceiving. Wow, that's like, I was surprised to read that stat. So I would love to actually hear a little bit from both of you experts here. Tell us a little bit about like, what are you seeing in infertility from a trend wise, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, the numbers that we talked about and the research that's going on in this area. So Ali, if I may turn to you first. Yeah. So in fact, the World Health Organization last, or two weeks ago, We've always been saying literally for 25 years, it's one in eight, one in eight, one in eight individuals or couples struggle with infertility. Now they're saying it's one in six. So if you yourself are struggling with infertility, you are not alone. And everybody watching this segment, I can guarantee you, knows somebody who is currently going through infertility. I know. Um, you know, uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure, you know, maybe uh, Liz, if you want to talk about like, what are the few factors that are like increasing these numbers and trends? Uh, would, you know, would love to hear a little bit from you about that. Yeah, I don't know that we know necessarily. I mean, there's lifestyle issues and all sorts of theories about this. But I think from the mental health perspective, since we're both mental health professionals, what's most concerning to us is the, we know the distress levels from the research are high. Ali did groundbreaking research a while ago that shows that the distress levels are equal to those who have cancer and other terrible illnesses. So research has proven over and over again that these people are anxious, they're depressed, people going through infertility treatment are so stressed out, but not necessarily seeking the treatment that we know can help reduce those levels of distress. So I think our concern, and we can talk a little bit later about what we did to address that, is making sure that people know that they can get help. You know, they don't have to suffer in silence and they don't have to suffer alone. There are places they can go for the relief and the coping strategies. Um, so, you know, totally agree with that. Ali, tell us a little bit, what do you think? I mean, you know, I hear so many people have different kind of, I'm, I'm talking about patients or, you know, women, uh, they have misconceptions about infertility. Uh, tell us a little bit about what are the biggest misconceptions that you hear about uh, fertility, infertility, and how does this create an impact or stigma? I think probably the biggest misconception is, is that it's always the woman's fault. You know, everyone always assumes when a, when a couple can't get pregnant, it's because there's something wrong with the woman. And, you know, data out of Europe is just astonishing. We are now finding that almost half of all infertility is due to a male factor. And so it's pretty much equal. If, if a couple is going through infertility, it's just as likely to be a physical condition of the woman as it is to be a physical condition of the man or a combination of both. Maybe both of them are subfertile. So well said. You know, maybe you should we should start reporting these numbers in 
one in X couples, you know, rather than saying one in X women, you know, to take away that stigma. So that's so, so well said. Um, uh, Liz, tell us a little bit about like, how does this create, uh, you know, a stigma? I mean, you know, I, I, I hear so many women, I mean, and they talk about, oh my God, I, we have been trying and maybe it's my fault as Liz said, but it creates a huge amount of stigma. I have some friends who have gone through this process and I've literally seen their personality transform, uh, you know, how they interact with their friends transform. Uh, tell us a little bit what you have seen in your practice. Yeah, uh, some light on that. I mean, it's devastating. People withdraw. They stop going to social functions. They stop going to baby namings, christenings, you know, first birthday parties. They isolate. There's so much... Um, it's shrouded in, sh you know, shame. And what's so sad is, like I mentioned, we know the distress levels are comparable to, say, cancer. But when someone has cancer, communities rally around them, right? They're like, who's going to bring them dinner? Who's going to sit with them in chemo? And you just don't see that with infertility. People kind of go into their homes and they isolate and they don't talk about it. And it's really, it's a shame because we know that they need to come out of that isolation. And that's what National Infertility Awareness Week is really about is, you know, finding your voice and coming out from that isolation and finding the support that's there. Uh, I, 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 I can totally, and you know, and is it also a factor that it's such a long process that, you know, how does that play into it? Because uh, there are, there are acute episodes, like, you know, as a physician, which happen, there is uh, trauma around it, you know, emotional aspect, and then possibly you start coping with it. It's such a long standing journey. But, but I mean, it doesn't tell us a little bit more about that. It doesn't need to be. You know, I was part of a huge research study where we surveyed 2,000 people with infertility in nine countries. And what we found was it took the average couple three years before seeing a doctor and start, and then another year and a half before they started treatment. They tried on their own for up to three years. And with infertility, time is not your friend, especially in terms of the woman's age, although the man's age is also a factor. And so what, what I say to anyone who's been trying for, you know, depending on their age, six to 12 months, see an infertility specialist because it doesn't have to take that long. You know, over the years, you know, it used to be, you know, three months of workup and then three months of IUIs and then six months of this. You know, people are being fast tracked now to the most effective treatment. And so it doesn't, you know, if you've been trying for six months in a year and you haven't gotten pregnant and you see an infertility specialist, you could be pregnant you know, pretty quickly. You know, so what I'm hearing both of you say is, yes, there is stigma, but you can actually take care of that, reduce that stigma and emotional aspect, a, acknowledging having your voice, as you said, uh, Liz. And second is, don't wait. You know, I mean, there is no need to wait and suffer. Uh, this is something that happens a lot these days and go and seek help. Uh, you know, it, it Tell, tell me a little bit more, uh, Liz, um, coming to you maybe. What do you see are the biggest gap? I mean, there is science has evolved, right? There are so many assisted reproductive therapies out there, centers out there. Thankfully, there is uh, employer coverage is also happening quite a lot in this area. But there still remains a gap. What do you see as the biggest gap in the fertility space today? Well, I think what Ali said definitely from the medical side, like people that fear fear keeps people from reaching out sooner than they should and you know they turn sometimes to maybe celebrities having babies really later in life rather than the science that shows that if you're aging you know you may feel great you may look great but your ovaries are still aging you know no matter how good you feel so i think what ali said is key and then from the mental health perspective you know, reach out and get the help that you need. I mean, the reason Allie and I created the, we have the first digital app called Furticom that we created um, in the space based on, you know, medical research and science. And we created it because we knew that patients needed something in the moment that they were feeling distress, you know, not a week later, not a month later, but in the actual moment that they're at work and they get their period and they don't know what to do, or they're at the Thanksgiving dinner table and their younger sister who wasn't even trying to get pregnant suddenly, you know, announces a pregnancy. And so we started to really fill that gap that you mentioned for mental health by giving something on a phone that someone could actually use in the very moment they're in crisis. You know, that's so beautifully said. I totally agree. I mean, and would love to hear a little bit more about the digital first approach, right? I mean, you know, we 
Curio as a digital company, and we are so glad to partner with both of you and Ferticom. We believe that you know you need to meet patient where they are or where their need is, and digital first can bridge that gap. It does not undermine the importance of seeing a therapist, but what it does is it it brings you a tool when you need it the most, where you don't may not have any any help. Uh, Ali, tell us a little bit more about uh, Ferticom and the work. It has been in market for quite some time. So tell us a little bit about digital tools and how you have seen them filling the gap when patients come to your digital app and then possibly come to you. What's the reaction and how they use these digital tools? Well, you know, I think that, you know, we, the average patient now, you know, literally always has their phone within, you know, inches away from them. And, you know, I just saw that there are 702 mental health professionals in this country who have knowledge on how to counsel people going through infertility. There are millions of people in this country going through infertility. And although, you know, Liz and I both see patients on a daily basis, as do the other 700 mental health professionals, we can't meet the demand. Um, you know, Liz and I came together at a Resolve event, it must have been six or seven years ago, and Liz, it was Liz's idea, let's create an app for those moments. Because, you know, I remember we, when I, we were first developing the app, I, we were having dinner with friends, and I showed the mock app to the friend. He goes, oh, my God, it's like having you or Liz in my phone. So when you hit that crisis point, when you get your period or your doctor's office calls with negative test results, or you see one more birth announcement on social media, or you're at one more social event where someone announces a pregnancy, you pick up your phone and you look at Ferticom and you find that exact situation. And there are six things, you know, scripts, how to deal with stupid people. There are, you know, 10 different relaxations. There's everything you can do in that moment as if Liz or I, or any you know, psychologist trained in the field, we're sitting next to you and say, okay, take a deep breath. This is really hard. What can you do right now to help yourself feel better? And that's the goal of Ferticom. And I believe this app is available in the Google and App Store both, can be easily downloaded and uh, all those who need help can access it. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to wait. You can just access the app and get to your answers what and help that you're looking at at any time, 24-7. Uh, Liz, tell us, like, you know, and in the last few minutes here, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to our users, uh, you know, to find their voice uh, and very timely with this Infertility Awareness Week? You know, that there's resources, there's there's your company, there's Ferticom, there's ASRM, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, there's Resolve. I mean, people don't know how many resources are out there. So don't sit home feeling that shame and isolation. Just reach out. There's plenty of people that are there to help and who want to help. I mean, we see you. We know that you're in pain and we can help. You know, I think the thing I hear most commonly from patients is when you know, they talk to me or they look at the app or whatever, and they're like, oh, I thought I was the only one feeling that way. And, you know, between Liz and I, we've had like, you know, 60 years of experience seeing patients and you are not the only one feeling that way. I mean, what Liz was describing is sort of almost being phobic about going to, you know, birth announcements or gender reveals or whatever else. That's normal. Most people going through infertility have a really hard time when other people get pregnant. That's normal in our world. And people going through infertility need to understand that some of the, that, that all their thoughts and feelings are normal, but there are lots of things out there which can actually help them feel better in that moment. Oh, this is so nice. So I think, you know, one, one thing I would say is that uh, we are very fortunate, Curio, to be working with both of you. Uh, you know, I know we are bringing not just Ferticom, which has already been there, uh, you know, also the next version of uh, Ferticom, working with both of you, which is making FertiLift for physicians. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I think you both are pioneers in your thinking that, you know, think about a digital first approach. There is a lot of help uh, and having a digital forward uh, pathway makes sure that there is access issues are taken care of. And not just US, this is something that can be is available internationally. So, you know, I know, you know, uh, uh, people who are even beyond US or North America can leverage something and hear your voice and, and all of the research and wisdom that you both have collected over the course of year. So thank you so much for bringing these tools and for partnering with us at Curio. And, uh, you know, again, uh, as, as I said, 
the Ferti Calm app is available in App Store as well as uh, Android. Uh, you know, you all can download it, uh, you know, and then again, keep, keep tuned to look at Curio and Ferticom for new updates that we are bringing in research and new apps. Just it's also translated into French and Spanish for people. French who are and in Spanish. Yep. So visit www.curiodigitaltx.com and ferticom.com and, you know, download the app. Um, I would encourage as many people to have a digital first approach to many of their uh, situations that they are in and can help it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate Thanks for inviting it. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Welcome to the lifestyle segment of Women to Watch. I'm Sherry Morrison. This week, I have the sweet and maybe a little savory pleasure of introducing founder and chef of It's a Cupcake. Welcome to the show, Chef Mona Wilson. Thank you. How are you? Good. How are you? Fantastic. So happy to be here with you. It's good to be here with you. Do you have cupcakes in the oven? <laughs> <laughs> I should, right? <laughs> yes, I would like that. <laughs> Mona, you are a true blue Camden Philly girl. Can you please tell us a little bit about your original career, where you're from, and all of that good stuff? Yes, I am. I'm originally born uh, Camden, New Jersey, uh, from the Parkside area. Um, Camden High School uh, alum, a little bit of Camden Catholic, um, born and raised in a great neighborhood to two wonderful parents, uh, back and forth between uh, Camden and Philadelphia. Um, I was in Philly for a while and then moved back home adult um, to help take care of my parents. So I'm still in a Camden native. <laughs> But you didn't start out in the cupcake business. What were you doing? What was your career before you were in the cupcake business? Oh, no. Cupcake, I, I, today I'm still wondering how this happened. <laughs> before I got into cupcakes, actually, I had just um, left the post office, which I had been there for 13 years, and decided to open up an auto tag and insurance store. And um, so I was doing that for about a good two years. And uh, then the cupcake craze hit. Next thing I know, I'm baking cupcakes. <laughs> you told me a little story about there was a bit of a cupcake challenge between you and some other uh, a woman's group that you were involved with. Yeah. So at the time, I was involved in a um, women's business organization. And um, it was around the cupcake craze. And I'm, I'm pure sugar. Anything to do with cakes or cookies, I'm in that conversation. And so uh, one meeting, we were talking about cupcakes. And it was suggested that the next time that we meet, that we should all bake cupcakes. And I was saying, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. You know, baking was for mom, grandma, and aunties. So I said, you know, I love to cook, but, you know, baking, we leave it to the professionals. So I was telling them, I said, no, I'm not baking. I'm either going to pay someone or pay my mother, one <laughs> or the other. And so they went back and forth. Oh, that's cheating. It's not fair. Blah, 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 blah. So I said, okay. So one of the things that my mother is known for is her sweet potato pies. And for some crazy reason, I said, let me see if I can turn this into a cupcake. But I really wanted like a certain texture. So once I get involved in something, I work at it until, you know, I get it to where I want. So I finally reached the right texture just in time for the meeting. And when I took the cupcakes back, it was a hit. So I'm like, oh, okay, wow, great. Next thing I know, my phone is ringing and people are asking me for orders. <laughs> and I'm saying, I, you guys know I don't bake. Like I have an insurance business and they're like, we don't care. We want to order these cupcakes. And next thing I know, I'm in the kitchen baking and new flavors popped up and it's just been going. Oh, that's really a great story. <laughs> so you actually started as a cupcake in 2009. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened once you got rolling with your cupcakes? You you were developing some new recipes and things? I was developing new recipes. Um, again, like I said, things were taking off. And one night um, I was home on a computer just messing around and this like thing popped up talking about savory cupcakes. And it was really a running joke. Like people were putting pickles and crazy things on cupcakes. But in my head, like all these new flavors came up. So one of the things I wanted to try was, can I turn a buffalo chicken wing into a cupcake? Of course. So 
Yes, crazy, right? So I practiced. I decided to do like a corn-based cupcake with different spices, cheeses, tomatoes. And then I put um, creamy buffalo chicken on top. So we had a meeting with the men's organization. So I said, maybe I'll take it to see, you know, if this thing will really go over. So I take it to the meeting and lo and behold, that was a hit. And next thing I know, people are calling me for those cupcakes. So I just said, you know what, this might be something that I should really be doing. Um, I really enjoyed it, coming up with new flavors. So I ended up buying a case and putting the cupcake case in my office. So while people waited for their tags or insurance, they were buying and eating cupcakes. (laughs) (laughs) You became quite well known and famous for your cupcakes. And then you were invited to a number of different Food Network competitions. Yes, yes. I watched Cupcake Wars, and and I have to say, you really keep your cool. Tell us about about this experience. (laughs) Yes, Cupcake Wars, just like out of the blue, different uh, shows were calling, magazines were calling, People Magazine, Food and Wine wanted pictures and interviews. But when Cupcake Wars called, I really, like I had heard of the show, but I really didn't know anything about the show. And they called and they were like, we were really would like for you to come out and be a contestant. So of course I was like, oh, okay, all right, let's do it. So I begged my niece who, uh, we call her Cupcake Girl. She was my assistant. <laughs> and uh, they flew us out to California and we were so excited. And as soon as we got there and landed, someone took off with my suitcase. I am like frantic because it was the suitcase that I had everything in that I needed for the show. All your tools. All my tools. So I'm like panicking and, you know, the producer is there to pick us up. And so we went to, um, you know, where you go find your luggage and just so happened there was a luggage was kind of just insy bit, same color, but really didn't look like my luggage. (laughs) So... We assumed it was that couple who took the luggage. So we called them. The people were very nice. We called them and the wife answered the phone. First thing she says is, I told him that wasn't our luggage. I told him that wasn't our luggage. And I'm like, but you took it all the way home. So I'm going back and forth with her. Her husband wasn't there. So she gives me her husband's number. And I call the husband and he's like, oh, yes, sorry. And um, I'll bring it to you tomorrow. And I'm like, tomorrow? <laughs> we need this luggage now. Yeah. So I had to go back and forth. I had to really threaten him and tell him I was going to call the police that he stole my luggage. Well, I'm glad you finally got it. That That's, yes. the, that's the good part of the whole story. Yeah. How, how, how did you make out a cupcake wars? Oh, uh, we came in second. Oh, excellent. We came in second. Yes. <laughs> it was a battle, a battle to the end. <laughs> so I think I think around 2016 or 17, um, unfortunately, life happens and some personal things. You said you had moved home to help take care of your parents. And then you got sick. You said yeah. you were sick for a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the good side of things, you unexpectedly ended up adopting a little baby girl. Yes, I became a mom. I thought I was going to be pitching in for two weeks, and now it's turned into a whole (laughs) lifetime. (laughs) Oh, well, two weeks a lifetime, not a big difference. Right. right. Uh, So you really changed gears, and now you're in rebuilding mode. Yes, yes. Adapted to having a baby girl, Um, and I think you said she's three. She's three. I haven't adapted, but she's three. (laughs) So from this experience, what have you learned? What what's next for you? What do you what do you plan on doing? Well, now that you know, life completely threw me a curveball, you know, like they say, we make plans, but God has bigger plans. So now um that I'm settling down, being a mom and um raising Zori the best way I can, I decided to I'm still gonna do catering, but I'm moving into the retail side. Whereas I w- would like to see uh, the buffalo chicken cupcake and a few other flavors. And um, I have these specialty puddings that I do now into uh, on supermarket shelves. So I'm working in that area now so that people can pick up and taste the buffalo chicken cupcake throughout the country. That would be awesome. 
Yes. And, and uh, I'm going to help you get to that point, I hope. Because I have. Yeah. I, I went through all of that when I had the soup company selling them to grocery stores. So it's it's not an easy not an easy path. It's quite an experience. Yes, and costly from what I'm understanding, little by little. It it is. It mm -hmm. is. So you're involved in a couple of organizations in Philadelphia, the Sisterly Love Collective. Yeah. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that group of ladies? I think that started around COVID, didn't it? Yes, um, they started um, coming together, other fellow um, chefs, business owners who uh, do food and various other type of um, items to, uh, you know, do farmer's markets. They do um, pop-ups. You know, they had to, you know, try to keep things going during that crazy period. So it's really taken off. It's a great organization. They do pop-ups and farmer's markets around the city. Um, it's also an offshoot from LADOM because I'm also a part of the LADOM organization. So um, now I'm working with um, one who, um, someone who has a store that just opened recently called uh, Salt and Vinegar. They're um, in South Philly at Knife and Christian. And there are a lot of the uh, women who have their products in her store. So soon, in the next couple of weeks, you'll be able to purchase the cupcakes and the puddings from that store. Oh, that's great. Salt and vinegar. I've heard of that. I think um, we actually, I interviewed a couple of the Les Dames Gaffier, um mm -hmm. in the last couple of months. I, I had uh, Olga Sorzano on, um, yes. Jennifer Minchef, uh, Ellen Yin, and uh, Natanya DeBono. Um, it's a really great organization of women and, and, you know, it's all about philanthropy and networking and mentorship um, and communal support. And, and I think that's a um, kind of also what the sisterly group is all about. Yes. Um, yes. It's all about inspiring, advancing and supporting women in food and beverage and hospitality. Great, great women. Great yes. Women. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm so honored to, be a part of that organization. And it's really, really good how they come together to get things done. Yeah. Really come together and really push you. And it's also great just to be in company that people understand, you know, similar to what you're going through as a mom, as a business owner, and, just, you know, trying to really stay on the course and stay on the path. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this industry is, a, I, I've said it and I've written it a bazillion times now. It's a scrappy business. Yes. It's not it's not for sissies at all. At all. You are absolutely right. Distance, strength, and um maybe a little bit of stubbornness. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So you're 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 in a shared kitchen right now. Is that correct? Yes, I'm in a shared kitchen now, um, which is good, but I'm expanding, so I'm back out looking for my own space again. Um, it's always good to have your own room when you can come and go as you please. Um, but it's thankful that there are spaces there that are available for um, small businesses, you know, to come in and be able to use a kitchen for a few hours to, you know, get your orders and things done. Yeah, because you're making cupcakes and puddings for catered, uh, catered corporate events and private events. And mm -hmm. um, and you're headed towards the wholesale is what you're headed towards. You're not there yet. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, so um, it sounds like a great plan. Yes, uh, it, it's it's a plan that has to go into effect. Uh, it's no longer just me putting around out here. I have a little one to think about. So that's why I said it's time to go into the long term, um, you know, side of the business. And uh, hopefully or not hopefully it will work because we don't have a plan B. <laughs> well, uh, she's a little young for uh, baking 101. Um, maybe you can give her a pastry bag and get her start her on decorating a little bit, or at least. Oh my goodness, she's such a boss. She's such a <laughs> boss already. She bosses me around in my kitchen. No, mommy, no, put this here. And I'm like, okay, so you will be going into the uh, you're having your own business one day. <laughs> uh, that's so much fun. So much fun. Well, we're running out of time, so I appreciate uh, all of your time and what you've uh, spent with me going over your career and all of the different paths that you've taken and now back on track. Um, yes. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. I can't wait to see what's next. For more information about Chef Mona and her cupcakes, ordering both savory and sweet creations, we did go over the different flavors of um, cupcakes. You said oh. the bubble chicken. 
um, but I know that there's some others. But to learn more about uh, Mona's, the different flavors of Chef Mona's cupcakes, go to her website. And if you're interested in ordering them for an event or you'd like to carry her products in your retail store, go to www.itsacupcake.com. Thank you again for joining us. Sue will be right back to close out the show. Ladies, keep living your dreams. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much to Kateri Krauss, our producer, and to all of our watch team members and sponsors. And stay tuned next week for my interview with Ginny Hill. She's the CEO of the Girl Scouts um, Division in Central and Southern New Jersey. Have a great week, everyone. It's the number one news at 10 p.m. Action news on PHL 17. Join Shari Williams, Gray Hall, Deuces Rogers, and meteorologist Adam Joseph for all the big stories at a time that's right for you. Action news at 10 p.m. on PHL 17. Now the women to watch, military watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast, NBC Universal. You know, Seriously, last year, the U.S. Army fell short of its recruitment goal by 15,000 soldiers. The other branches of our nation's military are experiencing similar challenges. Now, how can the military position itself as an attractive experience for current and future generations? As military leaders address these issues on the front end, there are ways civilians can support those efforts on the back end. Less than 20% of those who serve make the military a lifelong career. The vast majority wish to take the skills they've learned, the talents they've refined, and the education they received into the civilian workforce. That's why it's important for employers to continue their efforts in recruiting and retaining military community talent. For those who choose to leave the military, knowing their military experiences are understood, valued, and sought after by employers could influence whether these highly talented and dedicated people choose to serve our nation. And our nation has made incredible strides in understanding the skills, experiences, and spirit people with military experience bring to our workplaces. None more so than in the last 15 to 20 years, as our nation's military was in the forefront of people's minds throughout the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. At Comcast NBC Universal, our military hiring goal has forever changed our company's workplace culture for the better. It will remain a significant part of our organization's commitment to serving the military community. If you're motivated to recruit and retain military talent, PsychArmor has a series of free online courses for employers. Just go to psycharmor.org to learn more. <laughs>